Thanks for listening to a podcast from WSUM. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Hello and welcome to the Abolitionist Roundtable with the MJLC. My name is Anna. I'm going to be your moderator for the day. I am a co-editor-in-chief of the MJLC. And this semester, our theme is resistance. We've been going through a lot of different forms of resistance, but today we have a very special episode discussing the Stop Cop City movement. Um, If you haven't heard about the Stop Cop City movement in Atlanta, that's totally okay. We are going to explain it for you. So on this episode, we'll be hearing from a member of the movement. We'll be talking about its history, its implications, and this is a really special, super relevant embodiment of resistance. Um, It's pertinent and actionable moment of resistance that is relevant both to Madison, the entire United States, the globe, everywhere. Um, It's a really interesting combination of abolitionist movement and the environmental movement. So we have a lot to chat about. But before we get started, we are joined with two guests today. Would you both like to introduce yourselves? Sure, yeah. So my name is Quinn. I am also part of the MJLC. I'm one of the academic editors But then this semester, I also led a campaign that involved the MJLC and other student orgs around Stop Cop City. And I focused primarily on what Madison could do um, to help within the Stop Cop City movement. So I'll be talking about my experience with that today. Hi, um, my name is Hannah Cass, and I am a forest defender, and I'm also a joint PhD student in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and the Department of Geography here at UW-Madison. And I'm not only a forest defender, I'm a criminalized forest defender. Um, So I'm facing a RICO charge um, and also felony property damage and terroristic threats as a result of my Um, participation in the Stop Cop City protests. So I'm going to give a brief background on how I got involved with the movement, and then we'll go on to Hannah. So basically, just this past fall in September, I sat in on um, a speech that or slash presentation that was being given by a forest defender that came from Atlanta. They were doing um, a mass action speaking tour, and Madison was one of their spots. I came in and I learned about the movement and my interest in um, environmentalism with the associate students in Madison, their sustainability committee. I've been involved with them in the past and then also my involvement with the Madison Journal of Literary Criticism with the abolition side of it um, was basically I realized that I had tools on campus both in the environmentalism um, side of campus and the um, abolitionist side with MJLC. And I thought um, that I could actually do something cool with my, uh, do something with the movement um, at Madison. And that's basically how I catapulted into doing a Stop Cut City campaign that involved a bunch of different orgs. And I learned a lot about a different type of organizing that I haven't really um, done before. Because I feel like the Stop Cut City movement, and we'll get into this later, um, is really special in how different it is in grassroots organizing campaigns, and it's a lot more than just a grassroots organizing campaign. So yeah, after September, I basically pulled from different orgs um, to make this campaign from both Amnesty UW, which is a human rights advocacy group here, 
um, who both has a um, environmentalism team and an um, criminal justice team. So we brought those two together um, to do a tabling event. And that was the main way Amnesty got involved. And that was held at Library Mall, which was um, just a great experience. Um, and then through MGLC, I published a piece about how Madison specifically ties into um, the Stop Cop City movement. And Hannah can get more into how um, she got involved with being someone who's from Madison and getting involved with this event that's happening in Atlanta. Um, and then uh, with, so I had that piece, and then the student government, I um, passed legislation that basically called upon the university to show solidarity with the Stop Cop City movement because it's so connected to Madison and the history of protest at UW-Madison is so important and Stop Cop City movement has to do a lot with the criminalization of protests and it's with considering the history of resistance efforts at Madison, um, I thought it was per pertinent that the university show solidarity with the Stop Cop City movement. Um, so basically a lot of my work has been done within Madison, but our guest today has actually been on the ground in Atlanta and she can share that experience as well. I got involved, uh, I got invited back in May 2022 by a friend from Atlanta to come to the Week of Action. So the movement to stop Cop City has been hosting weeks of action where um, people just volunteer to host like anything like puppet shows and raves in the forest and um, documentary screenings, um, food distros, like all kinds of things in and around the forest. Um, and these weeks of action usually like culminate in several like direct actions to stop the facility from being built. And so my friend was like, hey, you want to go to the week of action? And I was like, yeah, this sounds great. Um, particularly because I am interested in my PhD research in anarchist approaches to food and land sovereignty movements. And so I was like, you know, a woman in search of a research project. And <laughs> I, uh, you know, hearing that there was like a land struggle happening here in the U.S. was really exciting to me. Um, so that's how I first got involved and um, went down there and had a lot of fun and had a lot of, you know, unfortunate things happen. <laughs> you know, I got arrested and, um, yeah, and can't say too much about how I was assaulted by the police, but that happened. Um, tortured in jail. Those jails in Georgia are like absolutely horrid. And it was a pretty life-changing experience, especially since that was the arrest that ultimately they didn't do anything with those charges because they were false. And yet a year and a half later, uh, I was indicted on RICO charges um, along with 60 other Stop Cop City activists. And 
you know, in that time, in that year and a half between um, my original arrest and my indictment under RICO, um, did a lot of other kinds of research on the movement and with the movement and a lot of solidarity actions, which were still a really exciting way to be a part of the movement despite not really being able to spend a whole lot of time on the ground. Most people see activism or like legitimate protest as like engaging with the state or trying to change policy or trying to like get some politician voted in or uh, the referendum campaign that's happening um, for to try and get the um, try and get the funding for Cop City on the ballot. Uh, there's public comments that happen, um, but I think one of the things that's very special about this movement is that like these conventional ways of thinking about activism are not the only ways that we conceptualize. Um, defending the forest or what forest defenders do or even what they should do or shouldn't do. Now we're going to hear from a forest defender who's going to explain the Stop Cop City movement from the beginning. So the movement to defend the Atlanta forest began back in April of 2021. Um, This is when people found out that the city was trying to build a 90 million dollar police training facility that would include a bomb range, um, helicopter pads, uh, racetrack, mock city, everything that a typical police force should not need. Um, And they were going to build it right in the lungs of Atlanta, the Wilani Forest. Um, And people found this out through Freedom of Information Act requests, not through the city coming out and telling them. Um, But by their own research. Um, And so in September, when the city uh, needed to approve a lease for the Atlanta Police Foundation to take over this land and um, build the facility, uh, people came out and spoke for 17 hours of public comment against the project. And of course, the city unanimously approved it. Um, So around that same time, the occupation of the forest began. Um, There were two sides to the occupation. So there's an encampment on the Entrenchment Creek Park side. Um, Ryan Millsap is trying to turn that park into the largest sound stage. Um, And that is currently in court. Um, They're challenging that the land swap in which uh, Ryan Millsap had originally leveled out um, a different area um, and then realized he couldn't build on it. Um, So he asked the city of Atlanta to swap the leveled out pile of dirt um, for the other park. Um, And the city said yes. So now that pile of dirt is now Michelle Obama Park. Um, so that is being challenged in the courts as the land swap was illegal, and so he hasn't been able to, um, build on it, although he has tried, and so that is why the occupation was on that side of the forest, but the occupation was also on the other side of the forest near Key Road where, um, the cops were hoping to build their playground. 
Um, so that occupation uh, lasted all the way through 2022. Um, it started to dwindle when in December um, people there started getting domestic terrorism charges instead of what should have been maybe, maybe trespass. Um, they were getting like $300,000 bails and uh, they were holding people in jail. Um, so there were still a few people in the forest until January 18th um, when Georgia State Patrol murdered Tortiquita. Um, they cleared out the forest on that day and everyone else who was there received domestic terrorism charges as well. The repression in this movement has been intense. Um, people have gotten arrested and held in jail without bail for putting up flyers. Um, people were getting domestic terrorism charges for sleeping in a hammock. Um, now, in September, 61 people were indicted on RICO charges. This RICO indictment has tried to criminalize um, political beliefs, uh, mutual aid. People have been cited on RICO for buying glue and writing a bail fund number on their arm. And um, it's a very scary precedent if any of these charges hold. But this is why this whole movement has become so multifaceted and had so much support from different sides because um, there's the environmental side of wanting to save the forest, there's the abolitionist side of not wanting um, the police to have this military base, um, and then there's people who just want their freedoms um, because this has really set a precedent of arresting people giving them domestic terrorism charges, RICO charges, for simply having different political beliefs um, and being at protests. And so it's been really interesting to see how this movement has shifted and evolved throughout these years. But um, one of the most important things has been their diversity of tactics. Um, this is what has been able to bring everyone together for this common goal of stopping Cop City. Um, there's been recent lockdowns and there's a summit coming up in uh, Tucson where people are going to focus on taking actions against the different corporations involved. Um, I think they're going to focus on Nationwide, which is one of the insurers for the project. Um, the tactic of targeting and putting public pressure and property destruction um, for these different contractors and funders of Cop City has been effective. Um, Reeves Young, the first contractor, dropped out um, in April of 2022, um, and then Brasville and Gory picked it up, but they contract so many different smaller companies to do different uh, tasks, and so uh, quality Glass dropped out from helping out with the project. Ernest Concrete dropped out of helping with the project. Um, Atlas dropped out three days or something after uh, the March 5th incident. Um, so it's been very uh, successful to delay the construction. Um, Cop 
city that they wanted the facility to be open by now, and obviously they've only poured concrete. For listeners who have never heard of Stop Cop City before, who have never heard of um, forest defenders, what is this movement to you? Could you give us a brief introduction to what this consists of? Sure. I can speak about how, um, since I'm involved with the movement from Madison, I can talk about my experience living in Madison and how that connects to the Stop Cop City movement. Um, So the biggest thing I would say concerning Madison residents um, with the Stop Cop City movement is the criminalization of protests. Because the Stop Cop City movement is doing all these RICO indictments, which we'll get into later, and these arrests, um, they're... Backlash against protest is not new, but arresting people for sitting in a forest or going to a concert in a forest or charging them with domestic terrorism is new. And so this is race concerned, as I said, for the criminalization of protest. And concerning um, UW's history with resistance efforts, this concerns a lot of students who um, may see uh, different responses to how their protests and resistance efforts um, occur in the future. And so what happens in Atlanta will have large implications for the rest of the country on how police and other organizations respond to different um, resistance. The movement to stop Cop City and defend the Atlanta forest is a movement to defend 400 acres of forest from being clear cut by the Atlanta Police Foundation to build an 85-acre police training facility. Um, And opponents call this police training facility Cop City because it will be designed in the form of a mock city. Um, And this is really similar to how um, the U.S. military actually in, in the 1970s, after the race riots of the late 1960s, designed these training facilities to militarize police, um, basically creating these mock cities that train police in militarized protest repression tactics So in, in the setting of a city so that they could repress like race riots that were happening in cities during that time. And so now we're seeing it happening um, in the wake of the George Floyd uprisings of 2020. It's a combination then of like an abolitionist movement and a forest defense movement because it's fighting both deforestation and deforestation specifically for a militarized police training facility that will like hyper-militarize police forces in the U.S. And um, there is also like a, an exchange program with the Israeli Defense Forces where the IDF will help train U.S. police departments. So this is not just the Atlanta Police Department. This is going to be police departments across the U.S., being trained um, partially by the IDF in um, repression tactics used against Palestinians um, and basically uh, training police to 
to treat their own citizens uh, as if they are at war. Let's jump into some of the implications. Quinn, what are the implications of this movement? Sure. One of the main implications that we've already briefly mentioned is just straight out the deforestation that's happening in Atlanta in this area. And deforestation, the implications are pretty straightforward um, um, that these trees are being cut down and it's going to do uh, have harmful effects on the environment. Um, one of the most um, important points is that this land functions actually as the lungs of the city, which traps a lot of carbon emissions and runoff in its marshy lands and its dense tree canopy. So getting rid of that just from an environmental standpoint is not good at all. <laughs> and another implication that we can talk about is how um, there's more cop cities being built around the country, not just in Atlanta. Um, we are seeing um, one being built um, in Nashville, actually. Um, so it's not only causing harm to people in Madison and Atlanta, um, as we'll get into. If the construction of the training facility in Atlanta is completed, a president will be sent for cities around the country to begin building their own versions of this elaborate institution. There are already developments, um, like I said, in Nashville, where there is a $415 million training facility proposal that is set to be located adjacent to the Riverbend Maximum Security Institution. And so then um, another implication that, we can, that we're going to get into is the criminalization of protests. Like I said, backlash against protests has been around since the first picket sign was made. But what is new is that protesters are being uh, targeted as entire criminal enterprises. These Rigo and Diamonds were created to target mafia bosses and these criminal enterprises. But these are instead being charged against individuals uh, with domestic terrorism for people that were just attending a concert or sitting in a hammock in the Wolani Forest. And given UW's rich history of student protests, what happens in Atlanta will have serious consequences for the future of resistance efforts on the UW campus and the rest of the country. Yeah, and so now we're also going to get into um, the point on property and how that relates to Stop Cop City. And Hannah has um, done a lot of research in this area and will expand more on this. Yeah, I mean, I should clarify, I haven't done like a lot of research on this point. This is like some preliminary research. Um, what is a forest defender? A forest defender is someone who is defending the Atlanta or so-called Atlanta, um, otherwise known as the Wilani Forest, from being clear-cut by the Atlanta Police Foundation. Uh, and there's a number of ways that forest defenders are defending the forest. There's a huge diversity of tactics within this movement, you know, so-called legitimate or illegitimate in the eyes of the state, and they include everything from burning construction equipment, um, graffitiing headquarters of corporations that are funding Cop City, um, sabotaging, uh, sabotaging concrete trucks. Um, then there's like the fun stuff, like like I mentioned earlier, raves and food distros and uh, the occupation of the forest 
which went on for a, about a, a year and a half or so. Um, and during that occupation, people built tree houses in the forest and lived there, uh, building barricades around entrance points uh, in the forest so that the cops can't get into the forest and raid. What is a RICO indictment? So yeah, a RICO indictment, the acronym, it stands for Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act. And so this act um, is based on a uh, federal statute that is uh, made to target mafia bosses and entire criminal um, enterprises. And there's uh, the specific Georgia version of this um, indictment, which is um, this Georgia RICO indictment already controversial for how broadly they define racketeering and allows a DA to introduce evidence that without racketeering charges would not stand on its own as individual crimes. And on top of all of this, the Cop City RICO indictment was still such a weak and absolutely ridiculous case that no prosecutor would sign the indictment. Um, Christopher Carr, who is the attorney general of Atlanta, had to do that. Um, So that's a little background on what a RICO indictment actually is and how it relates to Stop Cop City. Yeah, I mean, it's really like very preliminary analysis, but... um Basically, something that I've noticed is that property seems to be the elephant in the room in terms of, like, what is what the state is fighting to legitimize through the state repression being wielded against forest defenders. Um, so, I mean, first of all, like... I I think the points that I focused on in that talk were really like revolving around an analysis of the domestic terrorism statute and the RICO indictment um, and how property as an institution really functions through violent exclusion and Like, there is no property without violent exclusion is essentially the thesis of the critical legal geographer Nicholas Blomley, who I was drawing on in this talk. And um, I really see this happening in both of these legal documents or this statute and indictment. And... So in the Georgia Domestic Terrorism Statute, which was originally enacted um, in uh, 2017, like in the wake of a mass shooting at a black church uh, perpetrated by Dylan Roof. Uh, Some of you may remember that. So this domestic terrorism statute in Georgia was like created to like prosecute this white supremacist like mass shooter and now they've expanded it in the wake of that um, to look a lot like the the terrorism um, prosecutions that have actually been used against pipeline protesters in the past specifically through the the statutory language 
uh, on critical infrastructure is kind of this like weird nebulous term that they use. Um, so in the Georgia domestic terrorism statute, they say, you know, domestic terrorism is defined by the disruption or destruction of critical infrastructure. Um, and so what does critical infrastructure mean? It's like a super vague and broadly defined term, which like when it comes to pipeline protesters, it was defined by oil infrastructure. And it's oftentimes like if not oil infrastructure, it's uh defined by like police or government infrastructure or private property. Um, so it's always defined or, or used or weaponized in defense of property. And we've definitely seen that in the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement and repression of the movement using this statute. Um, so like basically people have been just like grabbed and charged with domestic terrorism under the statute for trespassing or for being in the vicinity of property destruction. And so it seems to me that like property is really like, it's really like the main thing that they're trying to protect through this statute and through the use of it against forest defenders and like defining terrorism not as like violence against people and like this is also really prevalent in just the the rhetoric that politicians and police and prosecutors use to talk about forest defenders is like calling us violent and defining violence as property destruction or transgression. So it's like not about violence against people or living beings, which is what they're doing actually, um, in the enforcement of property and in the defense of property through the use of this statute. And then also through the indictment of 61 Stop Cop City activists, including myself, on RICO charges. Um, so that indictment is, <laughs> it's like really a doozy. Yeah, and so, so the RICO indictment also kind of um, is demonstrative of this defense of property and is like a process, I argue, a process of property enactment or like what property is um, in terms of like violent exclusion from space um, and from like ownership and just like dispossession. Um, so the RICO indictment, it basically creates this narrative that you know, it all started with the George Floyd uprisings and like on the day that George Floyd was murdered and like literally if you go into the court records, like if you go into my, if you look at my case in the Fulton County Superior Court records, 
it says my case began on May 25th, 2020, the day George Floyd was murdered, because that's what the indictment says. Seriously? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've talked about this before, but it's actually ironic that they do that because it was this 2020 like Black Lives Matter uprising following the murder of George Floyd that caused this backlash against police. Mm-hmm. And that sent that like ripple of fear within police departments that basically pushed them to put all this money towards um, police departments to um, basically validate themselves again. And it's just all coming back full circle on what happens when they actually try to do that. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And like, it's it's interesting because I think this movement is actually quite inspired by, and like, this is why they're indicting us on the basis of, and like, in reference to the George Floyd uprisings, right? Because the Stop Cop City movement, like, is reflective and its diversity of tactics is reflective of the popularization of diverse tactics, you know, including property destruction and transgression, like, in, like, across the nation, right? Um, And so I think that's why they, like, they make this, this narrative, this story, about the George Floyd uprising because, like, it comes back to property and its enforcement. Um, And that's what they're trying to protect. That's what they're trying to legitimize. And that's also historically what the police have been tasked to protect. Like, the police have never been actually meant to, like, protect people. They've always been intended to protect property, probably most saliently demonstrated by their history as slave catchers like because enslaved people were were considered property at that time so yeah there's a lot more like to that that I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of but I just noticed that property is a huge it's it's a huge sticking point for the police and the prosecutors and the politicians who are really gunning to to disappear the so-called violent antifa that they believe that forest offenders are right so one of the i guess exciting wouldn't be the the best way to put it, but one of the power behind the Stop Cop City movement and why it has gained so much traction for such a long time is that everything that Stop Cop City entails is putting on full display how the movement to reduce in institutionalized harm connects beyond topics surrounding incarceration and how it has brought a bunch of different groups together um, to create this autonomous movement. And you just don't see that um, a lot of these autonomous groups of people in environmentalism, in abolition, in just being um, democratic groups, like even like human rights advocacy groups, like I saw with um, uh, Amnesty UW. Um, but because like RICO indictments at their core are just anti-democratic, um, really anyone can put themselves within this movement or find some find their protest within this movement that really speaks to them. Um, and by bringing these groups that are like huge in of themselves, the m- movement is revealing in real time the p- 
the power behind connecting with each other in resistance efforts in our own unique ways and coming together in this very um, concentrated goal of stopping Cop City. Um, and I just think that's really great. And I haven't been in a type of organizing group where it's this diverse in our backgrounds. Like people in um, the sustainability committee were asking me about abolition and I just thought that was incredible and really cool experience. Um, and so um, it also ties into um, the idea of moving together, but still uh, autonomously. And Hannah has um, been involved in spreading this really great piece about how anarchism must not be criminalized. Um, that was written by, I believe, 12 of the RICO um, co-defendants. And if Hannah maybe wants to get a little bit into that piece and how it relates into um, how Stop Kit how Stop Cop City um, benefits from being this autonomous group of people working together. Yeah, I mean, that piece was written um, really to address the fact that um, the RICO indictment is very, very laser focused on the criminalization of anarchism in particular. Like, in the indictment, there's a whole, like, weird middle school term paper sounding like definition of anarchism and like explaining what it is and they do a pretty like silly sloppy job at doing it but some of the things that they like hone in on is the anarchist principles of mutual aid of solidarity and, I mean, so-called collectivism, as they call it, which, like, it's, I don't know if that's, like, inherently a, an anarchist principle, but whatever. And they, the way that they cast it is, like, you know, they believe that, you know, that you have to give up everything for the collective. And it's like, okay, like, that's not, <laughs> not You've true. You've obviously never participated in any of these. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it would be funny if it wasn't so screwed up that they're actually trying to criminalize these very human, normal things that we do every day, all the time, like when we feed our friends, when we like give a ride to a friend, when we are there for one another in a basic way that we are there for our loved ones um, or for our communities. So in an indictment, the prosecutor, you know, in a court of law is going to have to prove why these things are illegal um, and so it's pretty obvious to us like that it'll be very difficult for Attorney General Carr to do this. Attorney General Carr who is prosecuting the case because Fannie Willis who is actually or the district attorney in Fulton County uh, declined to prosecute this case because she didn't believe in doing so, despite the fact that Fonnie Willis loves Rico. She did it to Donald Trump. She did it to Young Thug. 
Like, she's Ricoing all over the place. She did it to school teachers. Um, she loves Rico, but she wasn't into doing this Rico case because it's absolutely ridiculous and clearly a violation of constitutional rights and clearly politically motivated. But Attorney General Carr, you know, he's up for re-election as governor, so he's got to do his thing. And he's got to get revenge on the Antifas, right? Especially for the RICO uh, prosecution of Donald Trump in Fulton County. Uh, Most of our cases for the underlying charges uh, that are in the RICO indictment weren't even in Fulton County to begin with. So it was very odd uh, to most of us. You know, my attorney was perplexed by it, and I think the other attorneys were as well, as to why uh, why this prosecution is happening in Fulton County when the crimes, the underlying overt acts and furtherance of the conspiracy that that are needed to like underlie a RICO indictment were all in other counties. So in the RICO indictment, it's essentially trying to criminalize a, a, a political orientation toward anarchism and particular principles that help describe or, or embody or enact that uh, that political philosophy. So the people who wrote that statement uh, wrote that statement because they wanted to really stand up for the fact that this RICO indictment is trying to criminalize anarchism as a way of life and as a way of thinking and as a way of creating politically. So and and that's very evident in the indictment. So they wanted to, you know, speak out against that. And we'll have one last question for our forest defender. How does the Stop Cop City movement relate to the Free Palestine? The movement to Stop Cop City and the movement to Free Palestine are incredibly connected. Um, Not only has a lot of the knowledge about how to be safe during protests and get tear gas out of your eyes, um, that's come from Palestinians, um, but Georgia also has this Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange Program um, where cops from Georgia are sent over um, to Gaza to train with the IDF and then the IDF comes over to Georgia to train with American cops. Um, So our cops are trading tactics with the IDF. So theoretically, if this facility were to be built, um, they would be training the IDF in that facility, um, in this mock city, you know, Atlanta had this incident not that long ago where the police were training in an an abandoned building. Um, they were, their training exercise was searching for Hamas terrorists. We know about this because there was this whole incident about how they hadn't cleared the building first, and so there were squatters in the abandoned building um, who were not a part of this training exercise. But the point being, 
um, Georgia police and the IDF are, are besties. They, they love to train each other. They love to repress people together. Um, they love to learn how to cause harm to people together. So not only do we want to free Palestine and not only do we want to stop Cop City, um, but we do want to put an end to this disgusting Gilly program. Thank you so much, Hannah, for um, coming on the podcast. Um, it's been really eye-opening to talk to someone and organize with someone who has actually been on the ground in Atlanta because in Madison, you're very separated from the movement. It's something like 600 miles away from Atlanta. And um, creating a affinity group um, is a lot different from actually uh, working in Atlanta with the forest defenders. And um, I'm really glad that a forest defender actually came to Madison because that's what really opened my eyes is hearing like first person that experience. Um, so I'm glad that I'm able to be here as a student um, in Madison to connect with people who are maybe listening in and wondering why this is very important to Madison residents, um, but then also having Hannah here who um, has lived in Madison but also has um, been involved directly in Atlanta. Um, so thanks again for coming on and for Anna for moderating. Um, I think this has been um, a great way that people in the MGLC have been able to apply what we've been doing in study group and talking about but not actually putting into motion and doing that tabling event actually talking to students um, was a great way to do that um, for one of the first times at the MGLC. We recorded this episode last December in 2023 and there have been some developments to the Stop Cop City movement since. This clip is being recorded in the beginning of February in 2024 and we are already seeing the implications of Atlanta Cop City today in the Madison area because right now, there are plans to build a $50 million standalone police facility in Fitchburg, a population of 35,000 people, the Madison area's own cop city. There are several ways local residents can stand in solidarity, such as going to a public information meeting and advocating against the Fitchburg cop city. Meetings like these have been highlighted by local activist Tara Strangler and Freedom Inc. on Instagram. Email concerns or comments can be sent to scott.yarbro ugh at fitchburgwi.gov or the mayor and common council at the email council ampersand mayor at fitchburgwi.gov. Awesome. Thank you both for being here with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This is the Abolitionist Roundtable with the MJLC.